touch actually releases oxytocin, serotonin, and lowers our cortisol, which helps increase our generosity, our empathy. It decreases depression, anxiety, stress, blood pressure. And when you're a star, they let you do it. You can do anything. Nobody asked you if I wanted a massage. Did I say I wanted a massage? When people hug me, sometimes they didn't stop, and I get kind of overwhelmed. And on the squeeze machine, I could control it. I'm not afraid to be touched, but I'm definitely afraid of awkwardness. So it's morning time. Yeah. Well, I wake up, and there's a pile on, and suddenly I find myself in a puppy pile. These two girls all over me, on top of me, in my space. And uh, Hey, then just ask me. If you don't want me to do it, I'll say it's fine. Well, that's a good point. I actually happen to enjoy it. You guys get on each other's nerves a little bit. You definitely seem to be in each other's space. But for me, I welcome this incursion into my space. We talked to Temple Grandin in this episode, the famous doctor, uh, animal rights activist, and autism expert who is actually autistic herself, um, about how, for example, she chooses a seat at an airport. I think a lot of people deal with these issues every day on a constant basis. The worst arguments you've ever had are just about personal space, and not necessarily that physical bubble, but how you get into each other's mind space. She will repeat stuff, or she'll say it in the same tone I did, except for in a baby tone. So, like if I say stop, she'll say stop. Yeah, a lot of kids do that. It's a, little, it's a way that they start to experiment, I think, with getting into each other's personal space, entering each other's bubbles. So right now we are fully immersed in each other's bubbles because you guys have piled onto me like you do. And I happen to have signed a contract uh, to accept this type of personal invasion. But a lot of people that we talk to in this show have really different takes on space. Um, you know, when you go to an airport, when you get on a bus, Somewhere in your person, you're thinking about how you're going to define your personal bubble. Maybe subconscious, maybe you, maybe it involves your posture, how you sit when you're on the bus. You're choking me. One other thing that we talk about on this show is touch. Because when we touch each other, like we're doing now, we're very much in each other's personal space. And uh, we hear some interesting philosophies about touching from a professional cuddler. And we actually go talk to a mental health professional about some recent presidential references to touching that came up during the election. Do you remember, the, you remember those? Yes, I do. What? What were they? I don't want to tell. Yeah, it was pretty... Uh, private. Private. <laughs> Some, some issues came up in this election that kind of lowered the bar in terms of the presidential political discussion. We're going to get into that a little bit on this no, show. Just, no. just, a, just a little bit. Even, I, even though you guys hear enough about politics from me and we're not a political show, we're going to touch on this because it's important. What is it? So here's our episode in which we talk to people about touching and personal space. And we're going to call this episode... Get out of my space! Seriously, you guys, get, get off of me. Q. 
Get out of my space. Or come into my space. I'm a person who likes their space. But I guess everybody could say that. There are more of us than ever, obviously. And it seems like we're bumping into each other in new ways that we never bumped into each other before. So, in terms of space, is there a new cultural permissiveness about touch, both inappropriate and appropriate? Or are things pretty much the same? Welcome to another episode of Rome Schooled. The people we talk to for this episode will get you thinking, at a safe distance, of course, about personal space and touch in ways that I hadn't considered before, and maybe you haven't either. And as always, you can follow along at our website, romeschooled.com, where you'll find pictures and more information. In terms of physical space, the average United States person is allotted about seven square feet when they're dancing or listening to a concert. This is according to the American Institute of Architects. Or if they're out at dinner, they need about 15 square feet each. For your house or any residence, your bedroom has to be a certain size, bathroom has to be a certain size. People who are protected by the American Disabilities Act, pragmatically speaking, need a certain circumference of a circle to turn their wheelchairs around in. These numbers, of course, just apply in the United States, and we Americans take up a lot of space. But those are just the numbers, and they only apply on a physical grid. It gets a lot more interesting when you start thinking about the personal space issues that come from the psychology of it. That is, whether we have each other's permission to enter that circle of personal space. So here's the thing. Believe it or not, I've always been a very private person, even though I talk to you on this show with my daughters. For me, it's about control. When I feel my space is being invaded, if I can't leave a topic behind in a private conversation and, and move on to the next thing, I feel like I'm in some kind of a jail. I use strong language to describe some invaders, close talkers, for example, people who don't respect boundaries. To me, they're interpersonal terrorists. But then we do this show, and at best, we're having regular old casual conversations with people. But then sometimes when we're sticking our recording device in their face, I wonder if we're invading their bubble too much. My friend Courtney Hommeister is coming out with a book next year called Okay, Fine, Whatever, The Year I Went From Being Afraid of Everything to Only Being Afraid of Most Things. It's a, it's a collection of essays, and some of them got their start in a column that she wrote for a newspaper magazine in which she deliberately undertook uncomfortable activities that pressed against the boundaries of personal space. For one of these, she went to see a professional cuddler. I'm not afraid to be touched, but I'm definitely afraid of awkwardness. And to go into a situation where you have paid someone, a stranger essentially, to cuddle you, that I don't know that it's possible to find a more awkward situation. Than well, that. on top of that, you had a camera crew yeah, with, I, from the newspaper that you had been assigned to do the story with, right? Mm -hmm. I'm I, sure that helps to ease the awkwardness. <laughs> yes. Oh, God. It made it so much more awkward um, <laughs> to have. Uh, it was just one guy. But to have a horribly awkward situation happen. And then, um, and I have body issues. I don't look like I'd like to look physically. And so I just, what was really interesting about that was that um, Samantha, you can imagine she's, she's cuddling you, right? right? And she actually, the camera left so that we could have like an actual session. Mm -hmm. And after the camera left, she just said, your whole body, it was like laying here with a block of wood. I wouldn't have been able to do it. That must have taken a lot of courage. 
I mean, courage is a strong word, but, um, you know, stupidity is also a word. But I think she was so empathetic and she and she she just said, you know, what was that? What was going on with you? And I and so what was interesting was, you know, we were in this situation where a stranger had her arms around me. Right. She was cuddling me from behind and we just started talking. I think maybe I started talking to kind of get rid of some of the awkwardness. Mm -hmm. I don't you know how we do that as humans to fill space. Mm -hmm. We're so uncomfortable with silence. Okay, let's pause here for just a few minutes. We'll come back to Courtney. But I wanted to meet this cuddler, Samantha Hess. That's Sam. She started Cuddle Up to Me, which is a thriving business. We went to Cuddle Headquarters. Sam's world surrounds people who actually want to have someone in their personal space, very pointedly, specifically, cuddling them. True. <laughs> yeah. Um, how did you get the idea to start this business? So this started for me when I got divorced. I was 28 years old. I had spent almost half my life with my now ex-husband, uh, who wasn't very nice to me. <laughs> he, he wasn't, like, abusive in any way, but he just didn't make me feel good. He didn't make me feel happy. Um, he didn't have any want or need for touch, and I need hugs. I need to be close to people. And after almost 13 years with him, I decided that that didn't work for me, not having touch in my life. And so I got divorced. Uh, and then I realized that there's got to be other people like me who also just need a hug once in a while. That's the most personal reason to start a business <laughs> right? that I've ever heard. <laughs> and you, good. And it's been successful. You have a whole crew of people who... Yeah, well, not only here locally in Portland do we have people, but I also started CertifiedCuddlers.com, which has people. I, uh, I'm posting somebody new from Vienna, Austria. So we're, we're expanding globally now. So this is our studio on Burnside here in Portland. We've got four themed cuddle rooms, which I'd be happy to show you guys. Wow. Oh. Our ocean room has a wave light in it, so Whoa. it looks like you're underwater. <laughs> have you ever had someone you don't want to cuddle? like a client? So there are a few people we've had to turn away, uh, specifically because the service that we offer is geared only towards people who are looking for friendship and not something that's more of an adult nature. So if somebody's coming in and they, they want like a girlfriend or a boyfriend yeah. for a romantic interest, we're not the place for them. They're just going to be frustrated. And I would say three out of four requests when I first started were people seeking sexually oriented services instead of what I offer. Now, maybe one in a hundred. Oh, wow, that's great. Yeah, so that's, the industry has really taken hold and people understand what it is a lot better now. So we're sitting in a beautiful rented office in downtown Portland, great walking area with, with hip little stores. It's a beautiful space. What was it like when you first started? So I did about a year and a half of outbound sessions only before I could actually come up with the money to have a 3,500 square foot retail space. But Where'd you find yeah. your clients when you did that? So originally uh, I started by the traditional fashion of posting flyers on telephone poles, leaving uh, business cards in coffee shops and laundromats and wherever I could find them. And then I'm really extroverted, so I just literally talked about this to anyone I could find. I didn't think this was going to be like a big business. I just wanted some little thing that I could work 20 hours a week and, you know, have my life and make people a little happier. And now instead, I'm a small business owner. There's right. a never-ending supply of things for me to do. Uh, I'm also trying to jumpstart an industry from scratch, uh, creating it as I go along, building it up, uh, deciding what it, what it is, uh, and helping shape an industry from nothing. 
pedal shops have popped up all over the place. It's really quite incredible how many people offer this. When I first started, there was maybe a dozen people in the world offering something similar, and now there's probably thousands. And Sam has cuddled thousands of people, but she remembers Courtney Hommeister, our friend. She, she forced herself to do it. I know. No, I was here. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and have you ever had a reluctant person like that? You know, honestly, it happens pretty frequently. I get a lot of people who have pretty severe social anxiety, and they have a hard time trusting or understanding how to relate to people. Uh, I also get people who come in who don't have any want or need for touch, but realize how damaging that has been to their relationships in their lives, and so they come here to try and normalize touch, to try and find a way to make that something that they can be comfortable with for their friends and family, even if they don't want or need it themselves. What is it about touch and what is it about what you do that is crucial? So uh, as humans, we are genetically coded to be social creatures. The no man is an island concept works very well with us as humans. We can all survive on our own, but we cannot thrive without connection. We need others around us to really, truly uh, do our best and be our best. Sure, but touching us? Absolutely. So touch actually, positive touch at least, uh, releases oxytocin, serotonin, and lowers our cortisol, which helps increase our generosity, our empathy. It decreases depression, anxiety, stress, blood pressure. It regulates your sleep cycle, your metabolism. There's a never-ending list that I could give you of all the things that positive touch does for us. So how, how did you learn all that? There's a lot in what you just said, the studies and yeah. science and medicine. But when you were in this marriage that was without touch, were you aware of all this then, or did you discover it more after? No, so I did a ton of research on all this when I was first getting started. That's why I ended up writing Touch, The Power of Human Connection. Uh, it's the backstory of how I got into this, science and psychology of touch with a bunch of different studies and information about how and why touch is important to us. Chapters on communication, how to say no and yes, cuddle poses, a cuddle personality quiz even. So it's got your backstory and it's a how-to, and it sounds yeah. like it has a chapter about something that's a big part of this episode inappropriate touch okay buzzword let's pause here i need to set up this part about consent so for the next 20 minutes or so right up until we meet temple grandin there's going to be some talk about inappropriate touching and it gets a little prickly there are words about space about private parts so if you're listening with your children first of all there might be some concepts that you find inappropriate but we're gonna go there i'm just i'm just warning you but since i watched this election unfold with great interest with my seven-year-old daughters, my personal opinion is that they can handle it. In this next 20 minutes, we'll examine the conversation around consent and inappropriate touching, not just as far as young children are concerned, but as far as our society has been affected by the strange events and topics of this election season. But we'll also talk about close talkers and other lighter issues having to do with personal space. So use your own judgment in listening to this segment. But the truth is, if you have young kids, they'd probably rather be playing with a hot glue gun or shadow puppets or something during this portion anyway. So for starters, imagine you're on a plane, and the guy in front of you puts his seat into the reclined position. Your personal space is invaded, but it's legitimate, and he doesn't mean anything by it. But isn't it nicer when that person in front of you maybe turns around and says, hey, I'm going to do that thing, I'm going to recline my seat. Are you ready? Here I come. He doesn't really even have to ask, is this okay? But for some reason, it's so much better, for me at least. If this little transaction happens, my bubble feels less invaded because I've given consent. Maybe it's 
obligatory consent by social contract or airplane contract, but it's consent. But then there are other invasions, far, far more serious invasions. Here, I repeat my warning. If you happen to be listening with kids, this is the worst of it. This is the infamous tape. I've trimmed it down to the most pertinent part of the recording that's been the topic of so much conversation. This, ladies and gentlemen, is the 45th president of the United States. I did try and fuck her. She was married, and I moved on her very heavily. In fact, I moved on her like a bitch. I better use some Tic Tacs just in case I start kissing her. You know, I'm automatically attracted to beautiful. I just start kissing them. It's like a magnet. And when you're a star, they let you do it. You can do anything. Grab them by the pussy. I can do anything. Sorry to make you relive that. But like I said, I watched the debates with my daughters so they could witness and participate in the greatest democratic process on the planet. We watched the debates together with our neighbors and their kids. And at the beginning of the second debate, this is what emanated from our neighbor's TV. You described kissing women without consent, grabbing their genitals. That is sexual assault. You brag that you have sexually assaulted women. Do you understand that? This was locker room talk. Uh, I'm not proud of it. But it's locker room talk, and it's one of those things. But I have tremendous respect for women. Have you ever done those things? have respect for me. I'm going to make our country safe again. Thank you, Mr. Trump. And that's what I want to talk about. Secretary Clinton, do you want to... Let's talk about consent for just a few minutes. So I am fascinated by consent and these concepts around it because there is no socially normal accepted version of consent. We all have different ideas of what consent means and there's such a taboo around touch that no one's willing to talk about it. And when there's a taboo, it prevents us from having open communication and then nobody has an understanding of what this really is to each person. And I find in this business, consent means very different things to different people. So we, we teach communication wizardry here. Except for no wands. Yeah, no, no wands. When people first come in, I don't just put my arms out and expect them to hug me. Not everybody's comfortable with that. And so we have to do body-neutral language, verbally communicate whether or not we want that, and then read not only verbal signals back to us, but the nonverbal body language as well to make sure that someone is actually comfortable with what they're saying and not uh, giving obligatory consent. Mm -hmm. People may say yes when they don't mean it. They may never actually communicate about it at all. From my side, it's really interesting because I hate having to ask every single time I want to change my touch. It's not natural. It doesn't flow for me. And so that's why with the one-on-one sessions, we do uh, a blanket consent form where we give people a body map where they get to see the off-limits areas that they're never allowed to touch with hands. We discuss making sure that every touch is given with non-sexual intent, which is really vital for me because you can feel people's energies when they're getting in that kind of adult-oriented mindset, and we have to be able to, to switch them back. What What kind of training is needed for your job? So we actually do a 40-hour training program for each of our employees. Uh, The employees that I have here in Portland go through a one-on-one training program that I customize to each of them. I also have an online certification that requires at least 30 hours of training. We teach people about consent, codependency, different types of touch, how to lead people in appropriate ways, how to make sure that you're taking on only appropriate clients, um, how to communicate clearly and nicely with people, and all of the business aspects of how to run a business like this. I would suspect that there might be people that come at this in order to normalize something that was done wrong in their life, and they want to reestablish 
a good feeling about touching other human beings. Is that one type of patron? I do have rape victims. I do have victims of abuse uh, and then people with different anxieties uh, who are all struggling with normalizing touch and allowing that to be a positive aspect of their life. Uh, a lot of people who deal with self-worth issues where they don't feel like they're worthy of touch and all sorts of different reasons like that where touch has been a negative thing in some way in their life even though they know that they need or want it in some way or maybe the people around them need or want it and so it's really important that they find a way to incorporate that so that they can be a, a bigger part of their community their friend group or circle yeah. um, in terms of personal space when you get on an airplane Right. Do you ever think, who am I going to be sitting next to, and are they going to be in my space? What goes through your mind in, t in these? <laughs> For me, on a plane, yeah. my most exciting moment is when the person next to me doesn't have headphones in, because then that gives me deliberate openness to ask them questions about their personal life. You're one of those. <laughs> yeah, so if you sit next to me, you better either be reading a book or have your phones in if you don't want to talk. <laughs> but generally, when you ask people about themselves, they're more than happy to share their life story. <laughs> Okay, <laughs> so so getting back to the idea that instigated this episode, Trump, mm -hmm. there's so many invasions of privacy around this issue, right. but when he was just talking what he calls locker room talk, right. but he was bragging about what would seem like an incredible invasion of personal space, right. what types of issues around groping or around sexual assault or things that approach sexual assault um, come up in your day-to-day? It's really fascinating how often we get tears here. It's at least every day, and there's all sorts of different reasons why people are uncomfortable with these kind of social norms and accepted practices in our world. And I find the only way we'll ever break that cycle is to have open communication around it. And so I do my best here to get people to talk about the things that they're uncomfortable with. I love awkward moments because that's where the growth of life comes from. Let's open that box up. Let's shine a light on whatever that darkness is. Let's figure that out because we can't ever get past something or learn from it if we don't give it a purpose. Conversation gets shut down when people just say, you know, this is just a norm. Oh, it's just locker room talk. No big deal. I don't care if it's locker room talk. This is not okay and it's inappropriate. And if we just allow that person to sit there and make us uncomfortable, then we're doing an injustice to everyone around us. Can we go check out the rooms now? Okay, we're getting a tour. So show us what we're seeing. Okay, so the first is the Cascades room. So this is our forest-themed room. Come on in. Neat. Uh, we've got our cloud ceiling. Oh, wow. Uh, we've Whoa. got the swing. How long did it take you to make this? About three months. We had to build the rooms from scratch. It really feels artist. peaceful in there. Uh, the next is the ocean room. Wow. Uh, this one has a bunch of artwork done by my parents. My mom does fused glass, and my stepdad does ceramics. And then if we turn off the light, look at the ceiling. Ah. And it goes through all these different colors. And this has the softest blanket in the world. Ah, it's so <laughs> nice. So it kind of looks like you're underwater in here. Uh, this is our zen room. What's a zen room? So it's like a calm room. Yeah, it has a really fun ceiling. This is another one of my, my art projects. Our tour with Sam left us with a few more questions for Courtney. Did she tell you that she uh, embraces awkwardness, that it's one of her favorite things? Because when you're feeling awkward, you're confronting things that might not make you feel safe, and that she loves those awkward spaces. 
She didn't say that. Um, I mean, I would certainly understand that as as the person who's doing that job. Well, she feels like that's where people open up. Do you think that there's something to what she's saying about when you feel awkward, that's when you're going to start to deal with your shit and confront some of the stuff that's going on in there? I absolutely think it's true that you're going to confront your shit um, no matter what. The question is, are you going to actually deal with it at that point? Or do you just sort of move through it, get through it? like you get <laughs> Feel crappy. Anything. Exactly. Feel terrible and then get through it. Or are you going to be with someone with her? Like, we actually started sort of talking about my body issues and she... <laughs> She gave me some affirmations um, at the time to say, um, and, and I am not an affirmation That's fan. not your jam. Right. But she, she said, I'm amazing. And I had to repeat everything that she said. And she got to, I'm beautiful. And I was fine. And I just sort of said the stuff that she said. And I couldn't say it. It was, it was so anti-me because I'm lying there with the stranger cuddling me. I'm saying an affirmation and I start crying. Like it was the most embarrassing moment. It was, you know, because I am just so, I'm such a curmudgeon. Uh, it, it was a it was a really interesting moment. There's something extremely powerful about being not just being accepted, sitting in a room with someone who accepts you, but being touched by someone who accepts you. And my issue with it was that I've spent a lot of my adult life alone uh, romantically. I haven't had a lot of entanglements. And so I would go for years without being touched sort of in a tender way. You know, you hug your friends and you hug your, you know, family. But it's a very different thing to have someone really sort of tenderly touch you. Mm -hmm. And when you aren't touched for a long period of time, it affects you psychologically. It makes you feel bad about yourself. It makes you feel like you're unlovable. Well, and I say this, it made me feel like I was unlovable, but it also, they've done studies and, you know, like Russian children in orphanages, these kids don't get touched and they are broken mm -hmm. for a really long time. It's a really important thing. And one of the things that I've talked to friends about is um, that they will go and actually get a massage to keep them from like calling up some douchebag that they dated mm -hmm. months ago and sleeping with them because yeah. they just need to be touched, <laughs> you know? So it's funny because the kind of touch that they want is the kind of touch that Sam does, mm -hmm. you know? They want to be held. They want to feel safe. You know, right now I have a person in my life who touches me on a regular basis. <laughs> He's wonderful. He's a, he's a lovely, lovely person. But I have to say to all the snarkers, try not being touched for a couple of years and see if that's not an appealing idea to you. One of the things that she has taught was teaching people to feel safe being touched. But they're also one of the things that she has taught people to do is to touch people. What people don't realize, I think, sometimes is how vulnerable it is to touch someone sometimes. Because we're so funny about touching and romance and we want we want people to read these tiny little cues that we give yeah. them, like these literally a look. Like, we want them to read a look, and we want them to know that means I want you to kiss you. It's all super complicated. Certainly, to, to touch someone without their consent isn't vulnerable at all. It's a violent act. But I think that that reaching out, you know, when people are in couples for a long time, and you're the one sort of reaching out to that person, and you're sort of trying to start that process, that is such a vulnerable Oh, act, yes, and it's right? horrible. When it goes wrong, it's horrible. Exactly, when it goes wrong. You get wrong. denied. It's worse than getting denied by a, by a first date or second date. When you're with your lover and you get denied, it, there is an inner 
avalanche of fear going on and all kinds of oh, yeah. crap that goes along with that. I just remember when I was in high school, I could hear my brother and his friends when he was down in his room through the grate, through the heating. Like, I actually woke up one morning, I'd fallen asleep, and I had, like, heating grates on my face. <laughs> but, so there, but he had some friends sleeping over, and I remember I was listening to them talk, kidding around with one of his friends, and they were saying, like, oh, this girl likes you, and they were sort of joking. And his friend said... Oh, yeah, exactly. It's always the fat ones who like me. And I remember I was kind of, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't really big in high school, but I was bigger than, you know, a lot of the girls. And I just remember thinking, I never want to be that fat girl who likes a boy and he doesn't like me back. And this, this all comes back to physically reaching out, like being the one who takes the risk and goes for it, you know, physically. Yeah. That's that vulnerability is I don't want to feel that someone doesn't want me back. So the other end of the scale in this whole consent thing is not knowing if you're with somebody who trusts your boundaries. You know, Absolutely. At its worst, we're talking about extreme violations like rape, but it can also ruin friendships. If somebody makes a move on you, for example, and it's just interesting how touch is at the center of all this, and yeah. touch is this danger zone, but Sam has made it, it's a thing that she's doing that seems like it's a real value because it's such a dangerous place, and she does it fearlessly. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think that people need to recognize, you know, she has clients who, who are ill, who are, Mm -hmm. you know, some of, some of them are dying. And for them, in the same way that we need medicine to make us feel better, we need to be touched in order to make us feel better. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, that's how powerful it is. So you've written some great stuff about sex and in both your comedy and your essays, you've, you've sort of normalized some awkward feelings that people have, but how can you make it so that touch isn't so effing weird? That's a good, that's a good question. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think, I think overall what I would love for our culture to, to do is to just be more straightforward about anything that has to do with romance. And I have this problem, even as a person who's very comfortable talking to a crowd about these complex and, and awkward things, I'm still really bad about saying what I want and need. Well, the crowd laughs. They give you feedback right away. But if you say what you want and you need to, to some men, it'll scare them to death. Because, again, it's culturally taboo to well, say, I want you to touch me like this. And I think that that is extremely important right now, figuring out a way to make it culturally okay and socialize girls to be okay with asking for what they want. You know, everyone but women and girls specifically being okay with saying, this isn't working for me. It might be working for you, but it's not working for me. And here's what I need. And not, also not having this whole thing where it's like, it's so romantic if he just knows what I need. Well, you know what? It's not romantic. It's miraculous. <laughs> it is miraculous right. if someone knows exactly what someone else needs. I mean, miracle men are few and far between. Exactly. It's not natural, believe me. And I asked Courtney the same question about the taboo of touch and the Trump tapes. Is there a plus side to this in that we're all sort of at least talking about this? I think that what he said was, they'll let you do anything Mm -hmm. because you're famous. But that, to him, that's consent. Yeah, a lot of women allowed him to get away with it because they were afraid of saying something. Mm -hmm. And it's that thing where girls 
have been socialized to try to keep the peace. It's obligatory behavior to avoid something worse. Yeah, it's I'm going to allow this because otherwise what's going to happen to me is what happened to the women who came forward. They were called liars, sluts, they were called ugly, they were called too ugly to sexually assault, which sexual assault is not a sexual act, it is a, it is a violent act. And so it's not about who you're attracted to or not attracted to. They make other people, they do something that makes someone else feel worse than them and less powerful than them. Mm -hmm. Sexual assault is a great way to do that. I can make you feel small in a fraction of a second. All I have to do is touch a body part that's, that is not okay for me to touch. And, and do it in a way that says, I'm gonna get away with this and I have power over you. Yeah. Okay, you guys, we're gonna go talk to Vanna here. We're standing in front of her office. Just rang her doorbell. So before we leave this incredibly thorny topic, about which I'm sure we'll get a lot of letters, I wanted to go visit one of my resources, Vanna O'Brien. As a concerned parent, or just as a guy with occasional problems, she's my resource, otherwise known as therapist. We wanted to talk to her about personal space and about my jitters about this grabbing or groping or divide about how we look at consent. The president does not define morality. Presidents are held to a pretty high moral standard. Little kids grow up learning about George Washington cutting down the cherry tree, cannot tell a lie, mm -hmm. and the morality and philanthropy of the Roosevelt's. Of presidents aren't the moral compasses. There were presidents who were involved repeatedly in the repudiation of Native American treaties over and over. These are politicians. As a parent and other parents like me who are worried that there'll be little boys whose behavior will be sort of emboldened by this insanity. What I would say is what happened as a result of this is that the national discussion emerged from so many thousands of women who came out and said, yeah, you know, this happened to me in various degrees. So you're saying that Trump's rhetoric, what he calls locker room talk, what we call bragging about sexual assault, has occasioned a higher level of awareness? I think so. It's out of the bag now. And I think the shock for us was, God, I didn't know there was so much of it. To have thousands of women come forth and talk about, yeah, you know, I had a boss that did this, um, I had a boyfriend that did that, there was a neighbor next door, and, th and you think, oh my God. Okay, we've put some resources on our website for people like me, people who are concerned, maybe overly concerned, in my case, about their daughters, and people who have sons who'd like to work with them on these issues. Now... I promise you, we're done talking about Trump and the Trump tapes. I absolutely promise you. But for these worst-case instances of invasion of personal space, that's sexual assault, Vanna believes in self-defense classes. She took her daughters to one a few years back when they were teenagers, and she saw hope in her daughters and their openness. They said, what would you do if you're sitting on a bus and some dude sits next to you and he puts his hand on your thigh? And so we, she went around, there were about like maybe 20 moms and some daughters there. And when it got to me, I said, I don't want people to hear this. I don't want people to know this. And I realized, God, there's a piece of shame here for me about being the, a person that this guy thinks it's okay to do that to. And I don't want to draw attention to it. So I said, well, uh, I, I probably, I would get off at the next stop 
And she said, even if it wasn't your stop? And I said, yeah, I might. Is that really what you would have done? I think it might. I mean, now I wouldn't, but then at that class, I thought, yeah, I so much don't want to make a scene. Both of my daughters said, would you get your hand off of my thigh? And hopefully that the guy would be so embarrassed he would get up. And that's, of course, is the right answer. Draw attention to uh, it. Loudly. Loudly. You should not have to endure that experience. It's not your fault. He was given no permission to do that. Dad, this is getting kind of serious. Can we talk about pet peeves a bit more? You like the pet peeve uh, section? Okay, personal space pet peeves, please. First off, if you're flying, people that tip their seats back. Just but you're, but you're, you're supposed to be able to. Right, but seat space in airlines has been decreasing every year. Yeah, yeah, but if somebody leans their seat back, they're really only just following the rules, right? Well, first of all, no one requires them to tip it back. <laughs> and if you're a larger person like myself, you end up having... Your tray table, everything, you know, your, your little viewing screen right in your face. So, what do you do? You can either choose to suffer for the whole flight, or you can tip your own seat back and inflict pain <laughs> on the, the person behind you. Which so, choice do you make? Well, it's, it's, it's a moral conundrum, isn't it? So, well, which way do you go? Be honest now. Are you a recliner, or do you kind of... I'm not a recliner. Take I the suffer, hit. and I think evil thoughts. And your personal space gets invaded, and then My you pers- take it out... On your family. Sometimes, you know, flying in business, I guess it makes me a tougher negotiator. Remember, I think these seats were all designed in an era of Panama Europe? Clipper ships or something like that. But how, how tall are you, Ralph? I am six foot one and a half inches, which isn't that tall. I think actually there's a technological fix to this, which involves welding. <laughs> but there's another solution, which is that airline seats should be designed not to recline back, but for the seat cushion to slide forward. So then you, you lose your leg room. You lose your own leg room. By de- reclining. The, the moral conundrum isn't quite as... I think I got that. I think that's useful. <laughs> I think it's okay to move your seat back. I don't think you need to ask. Really? I... So you do it with total impunity? You don't let the person behind you know? No, the seats tip, and the person behind you knows that they tip, and that it might get tipped. I do believe it's polite to move your seat back into the upright position when meals are served. Because what if you're asleep? I generally wake up for meals. I never use my tray for meals. I use it for my laptop. You're on a plane. Uh, The goal is to get somewhere, and and if you need... And to eat, apparently. (laughs) (laughs) Well, now you have to pay for food, so the meals are fewer and far between. So your whole context falls apart, and that's, that's the thing about consent and personal space. There's so many factors and contexts that there's no one right way to do it. So now what if you sit next to the cuddler? Ugh. My, I am, I would say, one of the more chatty people around. I I like a good discussion. But when I'm on a plane, I absolutely hate speaking to anyone. (laughs) You have so little personal space on a plane, and if somebody talks to you, it makes your space even smaller. So when I am traveling, my point is to get from A to B without speaking to anybody. And although Samantha sounds lovely, if she sat next to me, it would not work. I would never want to have a long discussion during my plane flight. That's my pet peeve. What's your pet peeve about personal space? Uh, As a teacher in the elementary schools, the thing that really bugs me is when a child wants my attention and they kind of stand behind me where I can't see them and they just start tapping me and tapping me and tap, 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 tap. Oh, God. 
I try to ignore it because I'm not supposed to encourage negative behavior, but oh, it's hard. Smart. I want to say, what? Okay, how about you? When somebody shows a phone in your face? Yeah, that's annoying. <laughs> and then when people I don't know look over and they start reading my texts. <laughs> What's interesting to me about personal space is how we all kind of learn what we need and then you learn from other people what they're not comfortable with. When I first really became aware of this is when we were in the Peace Corps. And there was a guy in our Peace Corps training. I realized after a while in talking with other people is that he got too close, right up in your face. It's not like he did or said anything inappropriate, but he was too close. He's a close talker. Yeah. He doesn't understand that whatever that interaction is between people that says, come closer or move back, please. Yeah. We'd find ourselves moving back, sort of sitting back in a chair, and he didn't get it. He was tone deaf to those tone subtle... Tone deaf to it. And how do you go about telling somebody, I wish you'd get out of my space? So we realized that he needs to know this. He, he, he really does. Dana, was there ever a time school or besides your sister where somebody just got too much into your personal space? Yes. Yeah? Yeah. Tell me about it. Um, well, he basically doesn't... Who? I don't want to embarrass him. Well, if he's getting in your space, tell you what, we'll bleep his name out, okay? So, his, his name is and every time we get a number, in like number honor, he's number 20 and I'm number 21, and then he'll turn around. Today, he decided to turn around and cough right in my face without even bothering to try to cover it. Oh, that's kind of rude. Then sometimes also he just turns around and goes like, whoa. Just puts his face on your face? Yes. Hmm. What an annoying little jerk. Now, I'm sure he doesn't realize that. Have you said anything to him? do that can you see that i'm here he doesn't it's not very comfortable if you go like that in my face and he's not really registering it yeah no and then, and then when he coughed in my face earlier today i'm like please don't do that and try to cover your face and he's like well i can't because i'm sick hmm not sure if i'm understanding his logic It seems like it's harder to be simple and straightforward with grown-ups for fear of them overreacting or taking it as meaning more than the words that we're saying. Right. I think maybe kids can say something if they grow up in a home where they're permitted to express their feelings and their feelings are valid. And if you learn you want to be kind to people, but that your feelings still matter, at least up there with being kind to other people. Let me ask you how to handle a pet peeve of mine. I feel like it's an infraction on my space when somebody that I'm hanging out with, and it's because I had this brother slash partner for years and years who mm -hmm. every time he says something that he thinks is funny, he laughs so hard, you can't get out. <laughs> you're trapped. You have to laugh at his joke. Well, you're being controlled in a way. You can't find a way to say anything to this person without, with, sounding, without like sounding like you're being really mean. You are being forced to give up something you want, which is more personal space, and in your case, the right to not have to laugh, to find... It, it, find it is my right to not laugh. Well, sure I, it is. <laughs> I, I yeah, mean, the 
guy that you're talking about is that <laughs> yes <laughs> but we won't air his name but the thing is he doesn't listen to our show he's a very dear friend of mine so what's a tool i can use to let this person know or is it something that they've found success with for 47 years and they're never going to stop doing well, it? Well, if he's 47 and he's been doing it all this time, he's not picking up signals. And there are signals, I think, that we all give off to other people. People pick up those signals and they, they sort of think, oh, good, all right, you want to hear more, I'll tell you more. But then there are other people, they just didn't learn it. Now, this is a mystery because most of us want to fit in or at least be with people that we make them feel comfortable and they make us feel comfortable. But what happens if you're with somebody that, you know, they're laughing and laughing and they're looking at you and they're laughing and laughing and you're not. And so pretty soon you're like, <laughs> it's your only way out. It's your only way out. And you keep laughing, but they haven't picked up something, which is you are not joining them and reacting and responding to, oh, that's really funny. There's a, a glitch. And I don't know if it's because they don't care or they just are missing receptivity, you know, awareness. That's a tough thing. You can teach somebody not to interrupt you. Mm -hmm. You can say, do you realize that when I'm talking, you interrupt? Oh, oh, I didn't realize that. Uh, okay, I'm gonna let you know the next time you do it. I'm gonna just hold up my hand or say, hey, I wasn't finished. Well, why couldn't you say, do you realize that sometimes you laugh as a means of enforcing others to laugh and it feels kind of controlling, so people end up just laughing? And the next time they Did do it. Did you do that? Have you done that in 47 years of knowing this person? No, because okay. I'm, yeah, I, I would fear that it would hurt his feelings so, so badly. So that's it. That's totally it. Whereas interrupting is a socially accepted no-no. Well, it's also because you can be more clear. I was talking, you interrupted me. But how do you say your intense laughter is making me really uncomfortable and you don't seem to get it? Mm. I mean, that's a harder thing to say. It's like telling someone, gee, did you know you smell? <laughs> right. You know? yeah. What's the thing that you say to them later? Or you want them to succeed and to stop having this, this, this loop where, where they get positive feedback by enforcing laughter, then they hear the laughter that they wanted in the first place, so they go on doing it. Well, if I really cared about them, I would say something. Clearly, you say something in private. You say something when you're not drinking so that they can tell that there's a sincerity. I would say, you know, I hope you'll take this in the right way, because I really like you. But there's something... There's something I, that you sometimes I do. I would do some, some pussy foot kind of stuff by saying, I hope you don't mind this, you know. I, and, right. I, and others I, may not feel the same. Others, oh, that's a good one. Others might not feel the same, but you know, take this in for the me. spirit it's meant. <laughs> it's for me. Okay. Um, Sometimes when you tell a story, you laugh and you laugh at your own joke and you just kind of keep on going on. And it makes me really uncomfortable. Okay, there's my pet peeve. Vanna, what are your pet peeves? There are people who think that because they've perhaps taken a course in massage or they love massages themselves, that they like you and they see you and they come up behind you and start giving you a little neck massage. It's like, what? Nobody, nobody asked you if I wanted a massage. Did I say <laughs> I wanted a massage? 
just for the record, for my daughters or anybody else who is good at massage, I always like to have my neck massaged. So, well, good. Yeah. Go for it, girls. Oh, they're doing a great job right now. <laughs> but, but so... But, but, so there are also huggers that people who sort of... Their opinion is you're somebody that they can hug. You, you deserve a hug. You need a hug. Maybe you, you are blessed by them hugging you. That would piss me off. I uh, like to hug people. You like to mutually uh, have some consent established. That's right. And I think it's the mutual consent. So now with hugging, I always feel, admittedly, some awkwardness around hugging. Even people I know well. I'd say at least half the time I can't tell. Hug or no hug? Okay, now I'm going to say this. <laughs> sounds so arrogant. I would sense, based on what they said to me, that it is appropriate for me to give them a hug, which means, I'm sorry you're going through a hard time, and thank you for sharing that with me. But your job is to read cues and to understand languages that other people aren't in the habit of, of understanding. So what you just called arrogance is actually more a trained, experienced eye for body language, for yeah. level of um, disclosure. And things like that. Yeah, I don't know how I learned that. I've got to say, I just think you, you pick it up. The next person we spoke to in the last chapter in this episode was born with a special way of seeing the world. So in terms of subtle cues that we've been talking about, facial expressions, tiny nuanced mannerisms that indicate consent or non, Temple Grandin had a disadvantage. She's autistic, and one of the marks of autism is the inability to recognize facial expressions. But in many, many other ways, her way of seeing the world, space, and touch changed society's way of seeing things. Temple Grandin's an American doctor. You might have seen a documentary about her life or the film with Claire Danes called simply Temple Grandin. You may associate her with shining a light on the world of autism. She, in fact, reshaped the way we think about and manage spectrum disorders and how we treat the animals that become our food. When she was four years old, her parents were told that she'd probably never speak. Of course, she did, and she went on to make the world a more humane place for animals and humans as well. It all has to do with touch. We planned to go to Colorado to visit with Temple, but these plans were thwarted by an Oregon ice storm. So, ironically, this little talk about touch and human contact was conducted by phone. Hello. Hi, Temple. It's Jim and... Veronica and Dana. Hi, how are you? Good. Really nice good. to hear your voice. Thanks for talking to us. No, good to talk to you. I was just finishing up dinner, but that's okay. Fiesta salad with tortilla chip chips in it. Mmm. Yeah. <laughs> Temple Grandin invented the squeeze machine, or the hug machine. It's a device that you crawl into if you're human, or you just walk into if you're an animal about to be vaccinated or slaughtered. It's something that goes back a thousand years or more. It's an, an application of generalized pressure over the body of an animal. But Temple's work examined why this pressure has a calming effect on the animal and led to the development of ingenious ways of guiding animals and humans into devices that calm them. What does it feel like to be in the hug machine? Well, it's just very relaxing. Why scientifically does the hug machine make you and an animals feel better? Well, pressure is calming. It's sort of like, you know, people find massage is calming. Deep pressure for some people just helps to calm down the nervous system. Does it work across the board for everybody the same? No, it doesn't. It doesn't work for everybody. There, It works. There's some people it works really well for. 
You know, it works for the people that are pressure seekers. You know, some people, when they go to the dentist, they love having that heavy apron put on for the x-rays. And if you're one of the people that likes that apron at the dentist, then the, you'd like the squeeze machine. You know, the, these sensory things are not universal, but there is a definite subgroup that it works on really well. And it tends to be the kids that want to get under sofa cushions and, you know, like deep pressure. Go ahead, Vern. My parents swaddled me when I was young. Is this the same basic principle? That's the same thing. That's the same principle. Same principle. And the same with a dog, um, Thunder? Thunder shirt. It's the same thing. In fact, there's a lady named Camille King, who I have um, I helped her with the research project on the Thunder shirt. If you, you know, where the Thunder shirt seemed to really make a difference, if you take the dog and leave it alone in a kennel where it's all by itself, then you put a heart rate monitor on it and then a video camera on it. If it has a Thunder shirt on that's tight, it spends less time facing the door waiting for Camille to come home compared to a dog that has a Thunder shirt on that's too big. So it can, you're, then you're controlling for clothing. Huh. What you want to test for is the pressure. So the control dog had a Thunder shirt two sizes too large to make it a good scientific study. And the heart rate um, was less in the dog with the Thunder shirt. It seemed to help on their separation anxiety. Okay, go ahead, Dana. How is the hug machine different from when people hug you? Well, one of the problems I had was when people hugged me, sometimes they didn't stop and I get kind of overwhelmed. <laughs> and on the squeeze machine, I could control it. So do animals pretty much universally respond positively to these, or are there some animals that freak out in the same way that some There's humans... some animals that freak out in squeezers. They're just as different. Especially and... especially if you get them stirred up uh, before they go into it. Okay. Veronica. We know it's used on animals, but do they still use it on people? Well, there's actually a squeeze machine that you can buy, but there's also a lot of other cheaper ways to do pressure, too, like lap weights, weighted vests. We noticed that there's something called the steamroller. Yeah, that's been around for a while. All of these things, my, the, uh, my squeeze machine was sort of the start of all those devices. And then people wanted to come up with things that were a lot less expensive. So some of your work in terms of humane treatment of animals uh, and human contact has seeped into artistic enterprises and, and this movement of urban interventionalism and how society and densely populated areas deal with having so many humans in close proximity to each other. Do you spend much time in cities? Well, I spend a lot of time in airports. And I mean, normally if the airport's not crowded, you don't sit right next to somebody. You know, you kind of go into the gate room and eye the seats and try to find some that aren't totally jam-packed. But then when it's jam-packed, you've got to sit down next to somebody and ask them to move their luggage. Mm -hmm. And like today, I was in the airport and the, and the, and the tables were all jam-packed in the restaurant. So I had to sit at this counter and eat, which I really don't like. Why don't you like the counter? Well, because I like to sit and read and, and it's just, you know, next person's like right on top of you. What about when you get on the plane? When you're getting on a plane that you know is full, do you have that sense of dread like I do? No, I'm fine with that. When somebody sits next to you and their leg pushes up against you, does that... Well, when somebody sits next to me and the arm rests up and they're half in my seat, I don't like that. I don't think anybody likes that. Yeah. <laughs> so you're not a big fan of being hugged? Well, actually, I'm, I, I'm hugging people just fine now. So that's grown on you? You see, that's, yeah, that's right, because using the squeeze machine helped desensitize it. Oh, that's amazing. So we're exploring this question of personal space. So the, the, the episode's called Get Out of My Space. 
but we're trying to figure out what it is that makes people have a sense of personal space when well, it feels. Well, you see, like if the airport's not crowded, then、mm-hmm. it would be considered very weird if I went right up and sat next to somebody. Right. If almost all the seats were empty in the gate room. You wouldn't be doing that. I mean, I always eye the seats and try to find one where I'm not right next to somebody. Now, of course, if it's full, then I've got to sit next to somebody.、Mm-hmm. But that's what everybody does. Yeah, we all kind of do that calculus when we see a row of seats. Yeah, that's right. Sometimes you see in different cultures,、uh, there's different senses of personal space. I mean, I've been in a lot of different countries. And, you know, you kind of learn this country, and you stand about a couple of feet apart normally if you're talking. You know, you notice like even on the subway now, these just have like single poles. Now they've got these triplex poles. Yeah. So that each person can have their own little piece of pole to hold. But when it's just a single pole, you don't hold it right against somebody else's hand. Right. It's sort of an unwritten. Nobody does that. You, you know, it's like you don't do that. Like with a single pole, you you know, I make sure there's about six inches between my hand and somebody else's hand on that pole. You might have five people holding onto one pole, and on that train, you need to hold onto the pole. You're likely to fall if you don't. Right. I mean, that's what it's there for. Exactly. That's what it's there for. Everybody holds it. It's sometimes it's hard to get past a close talker, for example. But but they might have some really valuable stuff to say. Have you ever had an experience where somebody's just up in your face and you want them to go away, but then you end up getting something out of the transaction anyway? Well, I've learned to tolerate a lot of different stuff. I mean, I meet all kinds of people all the time. But you're very public. Yeah. You're a famous person, and when you go out, people are going to want to come right up to you, right? Well, and I try to be nice to everybody. There was only one time I wasn't nice. I was in the bathroom. At the Denver airport,、oh, and、no. I came out of the toilet stall, and a lady shoved an iPhone in my face to take a picture. No,、and、I said not in the restroom. <laughs> Is that all you said? I would have said something much worse. That's what I said. Not in the restroom. I said <laughs> just like that. I said I'm happy to do pictures, but I do not do them in the restroom. <laughs> That's quite a violation, actually. <laughs> but it, it wasn't at the sinks that she did it. That wouldn't have been as bad. It was toilet stall. Oh no. I I. <laughs> oh yeah, I remember it really well. I even remember which bathroom it was in. <laughs> That—that's not a person you ever really want to run into again in the bathroom. I don't know what she was thinking of doing that. So you just got home from a trip? Where were yeah, you? Yeah, I just got home from a trip. I came in from St. Louis. We were doing a cattle meeting yesterday. So you're still very involved in the industry. Yes, and I think it's really important that I keep involved in the industry. I've had some people just say to me, "Why don't you just go ahead and just do、um, autism stuff all the time?" Well, I think it's really important for a lot of kids that are, you know, maybe diagnosed autistic or maybe they're diagnosed ADHD or some other thing. Realize I actually have a profession. And do you consider your profession to be more about helping people understand those issues more, or understand issues pertaining to humane treatment of animals? Well, I've always been interested in humane treatment of animals, and I did that for ten years before I was doing any autism talks. And the thing is, my kind of sense of identity is based in you know what I do for a career. Well, you must be doing really well. You've had a major motion picture about your life, and some of these patents must, in some way, have your name on them. And actually, what I was doing was a lot. Put a lot of my stuff into the public domain, but I do have journal articles. Like on my double rail restrainer system, I have one patent on a pig stunning system, and I've been referenced in a ton of patents. And, you know, and I've written my book, The Autistic Brain, where we I talk about the different ways people think, and I'm a photorealistic visual thinker. You see, when you do design and engineering, there's two parts of design and engineering. There's the 
art side, that'd be the industrial designer. Mm-hmm. And then there's the more mathematical side, the engineer that does programming, structural engineering stuff, more mathematical parts of the engineering. Right. But you need to have both kinds of minds. Which which like do you lean more towards? Oh, I am definitely the visual mind, the industrial designer, mm-hmm. definitely not the mathematical mind. Uh, we had one, one question about animal rights. This, okay. You famously discern between how we view animals as not having legal rights, and we, we've in, in, at our worst, we treat them like a screwdriver. But that we've, that animal... Well, that was my paper, Animals Are Not Things. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, I kind of did a little thought experiment. Okay, I've got a screwdriver in my desk drawer, and then maybe you got a dog. I can do anything I want to that screwdriver. Torturing a dog, I mean, that banned forever, you know. Mm-hmm. That's something you just don't do. Yeah, they're both property. Well, that property, they're both property. That's a very abstract concept. But the difference is, is dogs have a nervous system and feel pain and feel fear, and screwdrivers don't. If you look at the, um, I've done some journal articles where I review the Jack Penskep emotional systems, and I review them in, in Animals Make Us Human and in Animals in Translation that I did with Catherine Johnson. She was very good at getting into that literature. And all mammals have seven emotional drivers down the base of the brain that drive emotions, and they are the same. Mm-hmm. The main thing that separates us from the animals is the size of the cortex. You've just got a bigger computer sitting up on top. What are you working on now? What's the next problem or issue that you're, you're attacking? One thing I've been talking a lot about is um, getting kids headed in, in towards good careers. I just gave a talk yesterday to FFA students, Future Farmers of America, and I said, go into college, do internships, try on careers. Mm-hmm. Too many kids, their parents force them to become a doctor and they hate it. You know, try on different careers. Okay, and these are all ag students, but there's a lot of different careers in ag. So try different things on because you don't want to go into a career you hate. And the only way to do it is to have personal contact with somebody who's doing it and to try it yourself. Well, yes. And, and for example, uh, like in our department, for example, uh, we have all kinds of internships. We've got internships at the meat plant and quality assurance and meat safety. And we've got internships at a credit union and on a ranch and at a feed yard and at a genetics company and lots of different kinds of things or a nutrition company. One student likes the meat packing plant. And the, another student likes the credit union. So you better try it on. I like that. So you you seem like in some ways, historically, you've been a little bit misunderstood at times. Is there something that you want to remedy? Is there anything in particular that you feel like people get wrong? Well, it's, uh, I guess sometimes people have a hard time imagining um, you know, how can care about animals be involved in slaughtering them. Two years ago, we had a, had a, uh, crop scientist come to our cattle meeting that we had in conjunction with that Denver stock show. And I learned something I didn't know before. The very best soils in Iowa and Illinois were created by herds of grazing bison. Hmm. Grazing animals created the best cropland. They're part of the land. We need to be getting the grazing and the crop rotation, the food crops integrated back together again. The big picture is being lost as we try to maximize profits in each field, it seems so. Well, one of the problems we got with autism right now is it's such a big spectrum. Since they changed the guidelines in 2013, they've taken the Asperger's out where there's no speech delay, put it all together. So now you got this huge spectrum that going from somebody that's socially awkward and smart to 
somebody that has very severe challenges and will have to live in a supervised situation for the rest of their mm-hmm. life. Well, I, I really appreciate you talking to us, Temple. You're really a hero to so many, and thank you for your good work and your fine, well, fine thinking. Well, thank you very, very much. It's uh, great to talk to you. Thank you. You're very welcome. Okay, goodbye. Goodbye. That bit at the end about autism being redefined sort of came out of nowhere, and I didn't quite understand it. I didn't feel equipped to ask her about it, but I wish I had. Because it turns out that the law invades your personal space sometimes, as I'm sure you're very well familiar. And that brings me back to what's so vexing about invasions of personal space. Like the difference that Temple points out between a hug and a hug from a squeeze machine. It's about control. When you have control, all is well and good. But when you don't have control, it's an invasion. Thanks so much for listening. Rome Schooled is now a nonprofit 501c3. Stay in touch with us uh, via our website and help support our roaming if you can by making a tax deductible donation. It's easy. Rome Schooled is written and produced by me, Jim Brunberg, with production help from Lydia Ritchie, who does all of our design and other indispensable production. Ben Landsberg and I make all the music as Wonderly, and we have a lot of help behind the scenes from Ryan White and David Gluck. So if you're out there listening, stay in touch. And thanks again for roaming with us.